Welcome to the Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. We're in the middle of the series, The Best Sermon Ever. For the last eight episodes, we've been delving into Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5 through 7. Today, we begin chapter 7 by taking a close look at verses 1 through 6. We've titled this episode, Hypocrites, Dogs, and Pigs, and hopefully that got your Hmm. attention. But the subtitle really says it all, taking a hard look at how we treat others. You know, Chris, we've said this before, but it bears repeating. We need to always make sure that the Jesus in our mind and our heart is a Jesus from Scripture and not a Jesus of our own making. No, do we say that? (laughs) Yes, we definitely have said that before over and over. But you're right. It's definitely worth repeating. There's something else that's worth repeating too. And that is that Christ only physically walked the earth for 33 years. His entire ministry lasted only three years. In his earthly lifetime, the total number of people Jesus spoke to would not even fill one sports stadium. The distance between the two furthest places that Jesus traveled, Jerusalem and Damascus, was only 201 miles. The total number of words spoken by Christ recorded in all four Gospels during his three-year ministry, excluding repetition within the Gospels or other people quoting what he said, is only 31,426 words. If you published a book with just these words, it would be less than 150 pages. These seem like pretty meager statistics. But even amongst the secular world, Jesus is still the most influential person who's ever lived. And Chris, as you and I, and hopefully every Christian listening knows, Jesus is much more than just the most influential man who's ever lived. He's the incarnate, holy, sovereign God, King, and Savior. Jesus says this about himself in Revelations 1.8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying that he's the beginning, the end, and everything in between. In other words, he's everything. And Colossians 1, 15-16 reiterates that. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, Rose, why does this matter? Why does it matter? Because if Jesus is the beginning, the end, and everything in between, what he says and what he thinks on matters should be of the utmost importance to us. In fact, it should be our authority on everything in our life. And that's exactly why we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount could be called Jesus' Guide to Living the Christian Life. And of course, Chris, living the Christian life does not mean being a moralist or a legalist or even trying to be a nice person. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) What it does mean is more and more resembling our Savior, or in the words of Paul, behaving in a manner worthy of being called the children of God. So let's continue with the Sermon on the Mount by looking at what Jesus has to say about judging others. Okay, I'm going to read Matthew 7 verses 1 to 5. That says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, 
but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a big log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In episodes 5 and 6 of this series that we did, we looked at Matthew 6, 1 to 18. And that section of the Sermon on the Mount dealt with giving, prayer, and fasting. In that section, Jesus addressed our internal spiritual issues. Here, he moves on to how our internal condition manifests to the external, i.e. how we treat others. Chris, there's a psychological term called rankism. This term is defined as, and I'm quoting, an assertion of superiority. It typically takes the form of putting others down. It's what somebodies do to nobodies. Or more precisely, it's what people who think they're somebodies do to people they take for nobodies. And although I don't agree with much that the psychologist had to say about evolution and stuff, he makes a keen observation about why people practice rankism or judging others. He says, and again I'm quoting, the reasons we're giving to justify rankism are bogus. They're actually not reasons at all. They're excuses. They're excuses for putting people down and keeping them down so we can more safely exploit them in the future or so they'll not compete with us or simply that we'll feel superior. Yeah, that makes total sense. Before we dig into the verses from Matthew 7, let's take a hard look at why we judge others. All too often, we judge others to feel better about ourselves. And worse, we justify our judging as being righteous. We rationalize that we're merely doing what Jesus told us to in Matthew 5.20, which says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus instructs us to be righteous, and we demonstrate our own righteousness by pointing out other people's unrighteousness. But that, my friends, is definitely not righteousness. No. No. I mean, it's judgment. And it's exactly what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 7, 1 to 6. The Greek word for righteousness that's used in Matthew 5, 20 that you read is dikiosini, which is defined as rightness or justice. Righteousness doesn't mean moral or spiritual superiority as the Pharisees and sadly many Christians mm. today define it. Our righteousness or rightness, if we're God's elect, comes from Christ, not from ourselves. Jesus imputed his rightness with God or his righteousness to us when he took the punishment for our unrightness or unrighteousness upon himself on the cross. Yeah, and in light of that, rather than feel superior to anyone, we should be humbled knowing that apart from Jesus, we're the exact opposite of right or just. Yes. We are spiritually and morally bankrupt. This was the unsaved Pharisees' condition, and it's the condition of every unbeliever. So when Jesus says that we need to be more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes, he was saying we need to believe in him as our Lord and Savior because that's the only way we can be righteous. Amen to that. And as always, Jesus knows the human condition through and through. He's once again trying to protect us from ourselves. As with the parameters he put on forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, found in Matthew 6, 12, which we looked at in an earlier episode, in Matthew 7, 1, he's not saying that God uses how we judge others as the gauge for his judgment. Jesus is saying that a chronically judging person is most likely not a saved person. 
And we all know what happens to the unsaved. Instead of receiving the righteousness and saving work of Jesus, they receive the judgment of God, the Almighty Father. Yeah, in contrast to that, a saved person who truly understands who and what they were before the Holy Spirit regenerated their hearts and they accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior will not be so quick to judge. Instead, they'll pay forward the grace and the compassion that they received from God. They will, as Paul recommends in 2 Timothy 4.2, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And Chris, this doesn't mean there's never a time to judge. As John Calvin says, judge not. These words of Christ do not contain an absolute prohibition from judging, but are intended to cure a disease, which appears to be natural to us all. This depraved eagerness for biting, censoring, and slandering. It's restrained by Christ when he says, judge not. It's not necessary that believers should become blind and perceive nothing, but only that they should refrain from an undue eagerness to judge. That's a lot of commentary for only two verses, <laughs> but it's crucial that we understand exactly what Jesus means in these two verses before we move on. Yeah. All right, so moving on to verses three through five, we see Jesus using hyperbole and humor to make his point. He says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye. The original Greek for speck was karphos. It's better translated as a splinter. And the Greek for log, dokos, is better translated as a beam. The comparison of a splinter to a beam better illustrates the difference in the two. One's a minute piece of wood and the other one is big enough to build houses on. <laughs> The main difference being illustrated here is the significance of us recognizing our own sin versus recognizing or judging the sins of others. I always chuckle when I read that. I do too. And I always chuckle when I picture that. <laughs> you know, you've seen pictures. We've all seen memes or pictures of that. Yeah. And I always think Jesus is really clever and he's really funny. And of course he is. <laughs> of course. But there's more going on here than just using humor and exaggeration for effect. What Jesus says here is actually a take on an ancient Jewish proverb, one that almost everyone listening would have been familiar with. The proverb said, when you can so readily overlook your own wickedness, why are you more clear-sighted than an eagle or serpent of Epidaurus in spying out the failings of your friends? Yeah, this statement of Jesus has been passed down through history. A noted Jewish rabbi of the first century, Rabbi Tafon, translated Jesus' words to his congregation as, and I'm quoting here, if someone said to him, remove the chip of wood from between your eyes, he would tell them, remove the beam from between your eyes. Even today, we use a maxim with the same spirit behind Jesus' words here. We say, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. <laughs> Yeah, there's a reason why this sentiment has been passed down through generations. Because it's true, and it's revealing of our sinful human nature. Theologian Adam Clark says this, and I'm quoting, It often happens that the faults which we consider as the first enormity in others are, to our own iniquities, as a chip is when compared to a large beam. On one side, self-love blinds us to ourselves, and on the other, envy and malice give us piercing eyes in respect to others. In other words, there's sin on both sides of this. There's the sin of not seeing our own sin and the severity of it, 
and the sin of seeing others' sins as more egregious than they may actually be. And again, Jesus is protecting us from ourselves as he tells us in verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. God created people for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. When we become more and more like Jesus or are being sanctified, we're glorifying to God. The more we glorify God, the more in love with him we become because the more we get to know him. And the more we love and know God, the more we're going to enjoy him. One of the chief elements of sanctification is being able to look within ourselves and see our own sin. Only then, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can we repent of it and ask God for forgiveness for it and turn away from it. The more we repeat this process, the more we grow. Jesus is telling his listeners and us, before you run off to your brother or sister and tell them what rotten sinners they are, get your own sinful heart in check. (laughs) Jesus is reiterating what he said in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 7, if you remember, which said, Judge not that you be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And just as he meant in those verses, there are times when we need to judge. It doesn't mean never judge. These verses are about removing the beam from our own eye before taking the speck from our brother's eye. It doesn't mean there's never a time to go to our brother or sister and confront them about our sin. In fact, we're called to do this. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. And James 5 verses 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So scripture is very clear that it's our responsibility and obligation to hold a brother or sister in Christ who's sinning accountable for their sin and try to bring them to repentance. But, and this is a big but, we need to make sure that we're doing it with a pure heart and pure motives and knowing the depth of our own sin, which should make us compassionate and gentle when we do it. Absolutely. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16 says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who's the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. And later in that chapter, Paul says in verse 32, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So, as with everything in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. It's a checkup sheet. More specifically, a checkup sheet to test our heart and our motives. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, which is probably familiar, If I speak human or angelic languages but do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Yeah, important verses to memorize and take to heart for sure. Now, 
Let's move on to the last verse that we're going to look at today. And that's Matthew 7, verse 6. That verse says, Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. It seems kind of odd here that this verse comes on the heels of Jesus schooling us about our own hypocrisy. This isn't even in a different section of chapter 7. It comes in the same paragraph as verses 1 through 6 that we just looked at. So let's talk about what's going on here. This seems like a pretty cryptic message from Jesus. He just told us not to be hypocrites and do everything with right motives and love. Now he's telling us, Don't give what's holy to dogs and don't toss pearls to pigs or they'll tell you to pieces. Well, Chris, here's Charles Spurgeon's take on this, and I'm quoting. There are some holy enjoyments, some gracious experiences, some deep doctrines of the word of God, which it would be out of place to speak of before certain profane and unclean persons. They would not only make jests of them, perhaps they might persecute you on account of them. No, holy things are for holy men And as of old, the crier in the Grecian temple was wont to say before the mysteries were performed, Far hence ye profane. So sometimes, before we enter into the innermost circle of Christian converse, it would be well for us to notice who is listening. Now, that may have left you even more confused. (laughs) But what Jesus is saying in this verse, and what Charles Spurgeon is correctly interpreting, is that some of the things of God are for believers only. For example, we shouldn't say to an atheist that Jesus died for them and because of that, they will go to heaven when they die. We can present the gospel for sure, but Jesus died for his people, also known as believers. If someone denies that God even exists, you should not be saying to them that Jesus died for them or that in their current condition that they can have hope of eternal life. And let's bring this closer to home. There's churches who have open communion and open baptism. I was at a church where the song leader announced communion's coming around and he invited everyone to take and enjoy the sweetness of what Christ did for you. I've also been in a church that were doing baptisms and invited anyone who wanted to come up at that moment and be baptized. The pastor even went so far to say is, we have two towels left. There must Hmm. be two more people here who want to get baptized. You know, after all Jesus told us about treating others with gentleness and compassion, The above examples of including everyone might seem like the quote-unquote right thing to do, but Jesus' words to the contrary are pretty firm. Things like communion and baptism, as well as some doctrines like the sovereignty of God, predestination, and others, are for believers only. Take communion, for example. Paul gives a strong warning of letting just anyone take communion in 1 Corinthians 11, 27-29, which says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And Luke speaks about baptism in Acts twenty-two fourteen to 16. This is where Ananias was speaking to Paul. Luke says, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the sound of his voice. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. 
Baptism is a public declaration of having been saved. Whether it's believer's baptism where the individual who's being baptized has been saved or infant baptism where the parents are saved and they're presenting their child for baptism to be part of God's covenant people. Likewise, communion is commemorating what Jesus did for you as a believer on the cross. Again, it's a public declaration of having been saved. Neither of these sacraments are meant to be celebrated or participated in by unbelievers. Now, obviously, only God knows what's in a person's heart, so we can't ever know for sure if someone who gets baptized or takes communion is truly saved. But scripture makes it clear that we're to fence these sacraments so that we make it clear it's only for believers. Exactly. And why is that? It's to protect what's holy from being cheapened. Also known as don't give what is holy to the dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. And Chris, let's give one last example of this and that's God's sovereignty. For those of us who understand this, we know how difficult it was initially to wrap our heads around the absolute sovereignty of God in all situations, both good and bad. Exactly. But as hard as it was for us, it's impossible, literally, because they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them, for an unbeliever to be able to even begin to grasp this. Instead of an unbeliever even coming close to understanding this when you tell them, you can expect to be mocked and persecuted for even suggesting it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can. But here's an important point that we need to understand. Jesus isn't telling us that the things of God are not for unbelievers because we're better than them. He just spent several verses telling us that we aren't better than anyone else. The reason that these things are only for believers and not for unbelievers is that God's people are set apart from the rest of the world. God's revealed these things to his people in scripture that without the Holy Spirit living on us, it's impossible for someone to comprehend and believe this stuff. Yep. This is called special revelation. God also gives general revelation. That's the revelation given to everyone in which God shows himself through things like creation, material blessings, and other things. That's how Paul can say that no one has an excuse for not seeing God. He's clearly shown himself to everyone through general revelation. We see this distinction between the believers and unbelievers and why some of the things of God are not for believers clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 1.18 which says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. And 2 Corinthians 2.15 and 16 says the same thing. Our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are life-giving perfume. And we just want to reiterate that these verses in no way say, do not witness to unbelievers. Right. We have no way of knowing who the Holy Spirit may be regenerating at any given time. So we are to witness to everyone we possibly can whenever the occasion presents itself. But what we need to witness is the gospel, the life-saving, life-transforming, central message of the entire Bible. No, we should not invite our unbelieving friends and family to be baptized or take part in communion. But we should tell them that because they're sinful and have offended our holy God, they're separated from him and under his wrath. 
And it's only through Jesus that they can ever hope to be reconciled to him. Okay, that's a good place to end today. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying this series. And if you are, please consider reviewing us on whatever podcast platform that you listen on. We would really, really appreciate that. Have a blessed day, everyone. Bye.